Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. The strangest interview I ever had? This one. And it's not even close. Imagine being winched up two stories to discuss seemingly every topic under the sun except sports, with an interviewee undertaking an enterprise which most would not even call a sport. My assignment? To get the scoop on one Alvin Anthony Shipwreck Kelly, a man who ultimately would go down as the greatest of all time in the sport known as flagpole sitting. great events in history occur, do witnesses realize the importance? Looking back on my time now, I realize I was one of the lucky ones, privileged to tell the stories of those times. I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer. become known as St. Simeon was born in or about the year 386 AD, just a decade before the Holy Roman Empire would be divided east and west. He is believed to have entered monastic life in Cease between the ages of 14 and 16. Cease was located about 20 miles north of modern-day Aleppo, but in the 5th century AD was located between the two biggest cities in the new eastern empire of the Byzantines, Antioch and Berea. In the early 400s, while Rome was doing things like getting sacked by Alaric, king of the Visigoths, this area of today's Syria was thriving and was a fertile hotbed for Christianity, a religion exploding in popularity on all sides of the falling empire. Meanwhile, back in Cease, Simeon was encouraged out of the monastery before the age of 16 for being too fervently ascetic to live within the communal setting. No matter, Simeon went and lived by himself for a solid year and a half, not eating a morsel or drinking a sip of water for 40 days, the entirety of Lent. After feats like this were acknowledged as bona fide miracles, the monastery at Cease soon figured that a spiritualist of notoriety, a celebrity in today's terminology, could be of great use to the cause of Christianity locally. Simeon soon faced a problem, particularly acute for one who tended to hermitude. His reputation for wisdom and spiritual clarity brought from all corners worshippers and intellectuals seeking advice or answers. So how could he perform his duty to church, monastery, and greater community, while also still attaining the solitude one needed to best communicate with God? And so, on the monastery grounds, Simeon constructed a pillar that was nine feet tall and not more than three feet in diameter at the top. He climbed atop and began praying. He lived atop that pillar for four years, and while Roman general Flavius Aetius campaigned against Visigoths, Burgundians, and Franks in the 430s, Simeon prayed and meditated and daily gave sermons from 9, then 18, then 33 feet aloft. While the armies of Attila the Hun rampaged through Europe all the way to Rome in the 440s, 
Simeon proselytized atop a 60-foot-tall pillar that the people had built for him so that the spectacle might be enjoyed by a wider audience. He had long been called Simon Stylitus, or Simon of the Pillar, by the local Greek-speaking intelligentsia. Simeon's death, after living nearly 20 years at 60 feet and 37 years altogether atop pillars, triggered a wave of imitators throughout Byzantine Rome. Numerous miracles were ascribed to him, and even his corpse was credited with working one or two. Simeon was rapidly canonized as St. Simeon Stalitus, his feats known to this day. So, what does the story of St. Simeon and 5th century ascetic monks have to do with Shipwreck Kelly and the flagpole sitting craze of the 1920s? Search me. I'm not even sure if pole sitting qualifies as a sport. Nevertheless, when Pittsburgh Guardian editor-in-chief Frank Delft heard that crazy gent from New York, Shipwreck Kelly, was in the city and getting set to plant himself atop the flagpole at the post office on Bouquet Street, he saw opportunity. Frank's reasoning behind sending me out here, or rather up here, to cover the story, was likely in line with most editors-in-chief across the country. Namely, it's a physical activity which draws more spectators than performers, and it ain't art, so it must be sports. On the other hand, one might argue that pole sitters should be in the gossip pages. They are, after all, high society. Aw, oh, come on, it wasn't that bad. Also, seeing a rather unique, if beyond slightly odd, opportunity for publicity, Mr. Delft figured that Shipwreck Kelly's appearance in Pittsburgh would be a great opportunity for advertising. And as I neared eye level with the pole sitter of, let's say, fame, I saw it. A sign maybe 18 inches across, reading... Pittsburgh Guardian since 1888, published six times weekly. What good this tiny placard would do at 50 feet up was anyone's guess. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. Kelly. I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer. You know, with the Pittsburgh Guardian. Mr. Kelly? You'd think that sitting on a disc of wood three feet in diameter atop a metal pole not to mention the noticeably nippier air up here, would leave even the seasoned sitter alert of mind and posture. But not Shipwreck Kelly. Instead, here he was, dressed all the world like a white-collar man in suit and tie, save for the dock worker's beanie, sensible headwear for evenings at these heights to which I can attest. He sat cross-legged, eyes closed, no noticeable exhaling or inhaling. It has been said that it is impossible to die standing up, but I wondered at that moment what were his odds of expiring in that particular position. I also wondered if I'd have to sit up here and wait out the remainder of the allotted interview time. And then he opened his eyes. I'd describe his gaze as the two-mile stare, but I'd imagine in this pastime, that's the standard. Shipwreck. Pardon? Shipwreck. Call me Shipwreck. Or Al, if you'd like. Al? That's my name. Having a problem there? A bit scared of heights, maybe? The height isn't the problem. It's the imminent possibility of breaking my neck that's got me concerned. Well, hasn't happened to me yet, so I figure you'll make it. The first rule of flagpole sitting? Relax, Mac. Don't white-knuckle it, or you'll run out of steam. Just hang tight and have faith. Don't white-knuckle it? I've got nothing to hold on to. Then you're left with the faith. And if that's not enough, think of it this way. The worst thing that can happen to you is you fall. And the falling won't kill you, just the landing. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't you supposed to be conducting an interview? Or are you thinking of taking up pole sitting yourself? A few have tried to emulate, but for many, well, the mind is willing, but the spirit is weak. No, I, uh, okay, question. 
Is it true that you're named Shipwreck because you survived the Titanic? Funny question, that. I'd have to say maybe. Maybe you survived the Titanic? Memory is so easily confused, particularly when others remain so devoted to involuntarily coloring yours. I seem to recall somewhat, but can't reliably trust my insight. I know for a fact I've survived several wrecks a sea. Always found myself drawn to boats, but rarely ended up as more than a lucky charm. Every time I remember cold, ice-sharp cold, and a wanting to emerge from the wailing of the drowning and the dead on wings if I had to. The story of the beeswax in Noah's ears came to me every time, and I thought every time of the wisdom of blocking out the lamentations of the damned. Any one of them could have been Titanic. I can't trust myself to say with certainty. Or maybe I'm just as mad as a hatter. Dante. Dante? That's a good name for you. Dante, the intrepid poet who traversed the landscape of the afterlife. But the Divine Comedy is a fiction. Dante didn't actually traverse anything. And this isn't actually the afterlife, Dante. And you didn't actually survive the Titanic, shipwreck. But maybe I did. You really have a tremendous view of Forbes Field from here. Too bad you didn't come this summer to catch a Pirates game. You've got the best seats in the house. Or above the house. I suppose some might appreciate this view of the game, but to me, it merely demonstrates that all below is diversion. So I take it you're not a baseball fan? Not in the usual sense. I played the game myself for too long, and now a trip to the ballpark sinks me in nostalgia. The view from here demonstrates that, as the sentimentalist would have it, baseball may be considered a metaphor for life. Adherents of the game have, since its beginnings, waxed philosophic about the stately orderliness of events between the perfectly straight white lines. The events of a game are contained within a closed world. The rules are known and the participants all start on even ground. Each ball game makes a narrative, each narrative moving to its own unique rhythm, but synchronous with the universe as a whole. And for a few hours, one might imagine one enjoys a rare bit of sense in a mindless world, a, a satisfying conclusion in a world otherwise bounded only, only by the ceasing of individual existence on this plane. And yet, from a viewpoint such as this, one may choose to view several junctions below. The river ports, that pharmacy over there, the, the churchyard, as like sealed off worlds, each replete with the same sort of order and internal fixedness all bereft of the thrills, despair, and in-betweens expressed by individual souls. From this perspective, one might get the faintest gleaming of what the creation could have been. The sight of whole worlds coming into action, populated by those who know of your presence in only the vaguest of terms. Is that why you do this? Why I do what? This. The flagpole sitting. Oh, that. No, 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 of course not. Looking at masses of people moving about doesn't eliminate individual concerns and strengths and weaknesses. And a perspective like this doesn't reveal an unseen order. It merely casts the illusion in another light, in a third dimension, if you will. You called yourself Orville, didn't you, Dante? Uh, yes, that's right. Like the Wright brother. Good. Well, imagine old Orville Wright up there in his airplane. Now, he's at thousands of feet. Imagine the worlds he can see when looking downward. But then he looks up. What does he see? The sky. 
absolutely right. But here's the difference, or rather the sameness. The details of groundbound life have faded into insignificance from thousands of feet up. But our Mr. Wright experiences the exact same sky as do those below. So why do you do it? To fulfill the people's existence. Excuse me for saying so, but that's quite a glib answer, if not completely pretentious. Is it? Well, Dante, let me ask you this. Why do you do what it is that you do? Sports writing? Well, after I earned my degree at Penn, I wasn't entirely sure what I specifically wanted to do, but... No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I apologize for the poor wording. What do you do what you do for? What for? For the travel, the excitement, the, the free tickets to the best sports. And the writing itself? Well, I guess I'd say that's about the satisfaction of constructing the well-turned phrase, the enjoyment of economy of language. Well, would you do the same job in the same way for the same pay if whatever you wrote wasn't published in the newspaper? If you could have only the free tickets to the Rose Bowl, the cross-country trips, and the thrill of the adverb, would that be enough? I see. There's no point in writing if no one's bothering to read, right? If people didn't bother to look up and see me, Shipwreck Kelly, flagpole sitter extraordinaire might not exist at all in the real or even the surreal sense. Why do you say that? Because it's outside perception that determines the man. For example, are you at all familiar with the story of St. Simeon of the Pillar? I am. As to St. Simeon's activities while living on a pole for 37 years, it is known that, in addition to giving two sermons daily, he continuously and repeatedly prostrated himself to God. These colorless descriptions would be the sum total of the saint's daily life as recorded by history. But one observer, fulfilling his crucial role of observer to the supplicants, dutifully counted Simon's repeated bows over the course of a single 16-hour period. These figures show that Simeon had partaken in 1,244 reverences over the 16 hours for an average of one bow every 45 seconds. That man was you. As surely as pole sitting was the closest thing to spectator sport then, so was that dutiful watcher the sports writer of his day. This is what I meant. And the $70 a day doesn't hurt either. You make $70 a day pole sitting? I have. I have thought many a time how fortunate it is that a society such as this or early Byzantine Rome could support us of such a vocation. Or maybe I'm just as mad as a hatter. What do you make of pole sitting becoming a bit of a fad, like dance marathons or goldfish swallowing? All kinds of folks are taking to pole sitting. I was the first, mind you, but like all things, others follow. In my humble opinion, I say pole sitting is an honest venture. One of its great appeals to me is the naked, honest simplicity. You put a man up high in the air, free for all to see, needing for those to see, and there is no hiding his methods or his flaws. For me, sitting up here is better than anything else I've ever done. Every other vocation I've ever followed, even semi-pro ball, I would say, was mean and wasteful in one way or another. I can only speculate on why others might try pole sitting, perhaps for the imagined money and fame and those sorts of parlor tricks. Parlor tricks one and all, I tell you. I have better things to do up above the earth, more than money and fame to be found up here. Like what? A different point of view, I'd say. Haven't you noticed? So much for advertising. Sorry.
I'm not sure how Frank thought he was going to make money off of that anyway. Just when I was getting used to this. Faith, Dante. Keep the faith. Uh, okay. All right. I'm sure my readers would like to know how you do it. Beyond faith and all that. I mean, physically. How do you stay up here? Strong hands, a blanket, and a bucket. A bucket. Yes, sir. This one here. For, oh. That's right. I meant it when I said pole sitting was naked, honest simplicity. On this pole, food comes up and all the rest goes down. Duck soup. It's why I recommend any prospective pole sitter bring a blanket. Flagpole life is not one for the modest, but one can respect the sensibilities of the crowd. I figured this is part of the reason why old St. Simeon tended to go on fast for months at a time when living on pillars. Less waste. Better be careful with it, then. Always am. That's one thing pole sitting will teach you. Care. Do enough pole sitting, and being careful isn't something you do anymore. It's something you are. At first, nothing is simple. Not bodily functions, not sleeping. To do pole sitting, I had to learn a whole new way of watching. One can't lean forward to watch anymore unless you want to dangle by the leg strap until such time as a ladder might arrive. And if you want to follow the action, you have to keep track of dozens of intermingling, indistinguishable dots all at once. And you can't spend the time scanning the horizon for air you can't see up, down, around like you've been doing this whole time. You've got to ignore your tuchus tingling and your hands cramping. What's the book? Well, I do consider myself a pious man, though not religious, mind you. So every so often, I do go through the one book the dead kings say we should read. Though, perhaps not necessarily the version the more typical adherent might swear to. Do you mean the Bible? Yes, but I don't mind telling you and your readers that I greatly prefer the Jefferson Bible to the rest. Oh, why is that? Because it's comprised only of the words God said directly to man through a man when he was one of us, all bound in flesh and blood as Jesus. The way I figure it, God makes the most sense when he can't just fly about willy-nilly and flood and burn when it suits him, untethered as he was, just a spirit in the winds. You have that kind of unfettered freedom, and you'll find yourself capable of just about anything. Terrible things, Mac. I like it better when he has to walk like us and talk like us and work and toil and all that preachy stuff. Hunger and want make even the creator honest. That's a real measure of living the necessity for a touch of suffering. You give a man a hoe and a road of weed, give him a few blisters, and he'll gain a whole new view of things. You feel a cold wind in your face in advance of winter, and you'll know that you must stand up and not be blown down. How humbling it must have been for a god to feel tired and weary, to be made of bone and gristle and muscle and skin. It was humbling enough to wise him up and get him to understand our lot. At least I'd like to think so. Yes, I suppose. The unsettling effect the raven induced in me went far beyond the normal. The bird seemed to peer into my essence and root around in my soul. It was not delivering a message. Certainly no nevermore was forthcoming. For this creature sought only to rummage about, taking as it pleased, leaving my spirit disheveled in its wake, and with the understanding that this was the toll for occupying space in this domain, however briefly. How long does it take for the mentality of the pole sitter to take hold? Does that sort of thing happen to you often with ravens? All the time. Most other birds will barely give me a sideward glance. 
If I'm not a worm, a seed, or a mate, they've got no use for me. But ravens? Ravens are different. Harbingers they are, of good or bad, depending. The way they all apparently roam the metaphysical. The ravens left Noah in the lurch, but made good with Odin the one-eyed. And the native folks, the red Indians, Mm -hmm. they kept company with Raven, he who freed the sun and moon and stars. I suppose they visit me to see how I'm doing in my meditations, or they're curious to see me fall to my death. Both, more than likely. Best to respect them as they are and for what they are. For more than any other animal, they know our follies. Though they feel no sympathy for us, at least they share our fate. Ravens were in the garden with us, you know, the first garden, the only other animal to eat the apple. But those birds were smart enough to spit out the offending matter before the big man could get indignant with them. Right back then, did the raven gain the same knowledge of mankind, but felt no shame for it. It simply might be that something about the uniquity of a human being inhabiting an environment normally so alien to us draws not only our attention, but that of certain other species as well. You seem to know some things, Dante. Do you know the story of St. Simeon and the dragon? I don't know that one. One day, I believe when he was atop the 33-foot pillar, Simeon had finished his second sermon and his references for the day when a Komodo dragon staggered through the monastery grounds, half blind with a wooden stake jammed into its eye. The dragon approached Simeon's pillar and stopped, peacefully laying its wounded head on the side of its remaining good eye at the pillar's base. For three days, Simeon continued his daily course, sermonizing as usual at the same times, though no one gathered round the pillar for fear of the wounded beast, clearly alive still, but unmoving. Finally, Simeon called forth for the monks to tend to the dragon, to apply water and tilled earth to the wounded eye. Immediately upon this application, the stake, nearly two feet long, slid easily from the dragon's eye. The dragon returned to whence it had come, and Simeon was venerated as a miracle maker once more. What does that story say to you? Oh, look at this sweet sunset starting up. Maybe it was the thinness of the oxygen at 50 feet. Maybe it was the relatively unobscured view provided from this particular vantage point. But this early sunset seemed somehow cleaner and sharper than most I'd seen from within the confines of civilization. The eye of sky slowly winking shut over Forbes Field, stripes of orange reflecting on the waters of the Twin Rivers to the east. Ah, just showing off. Who, me? No, God, look at this. Putting out every color there is all in one sundown. I like to imagine that heaven is much the same. Up here, I can pretend to be just a little bit closer to that glory up above. Once, I fancifully figured that similar thoughts had occurred to old Simeon on his pillar, though now I realize the presumptuousness of that. Ah, so that's the motivation, to attain a closeness to God. It's as good a reason as any. Even the illusion of a head start to visit the big man I can get, I'll take. As you can guess... I'm not exactly partial to crowds. Not that I dislike people or even large assemblies of them. I'd just rather deal with them on my own terms. And I figure I can beat the crowds when it comes time to meet our maker. I also like to imagine that some who glance up to see the spectacle of that man mad as a hatter perched atop a pole might gaze past to the real show made a bit less mundane. I don't believe that most in our time tend to realize that they get a glimpse of the infinite every evening 
If only they'd see with open eyes. How long do you think you could stay up here, Shipwreck? As long as it takes. I'm in no hurry to get anywhere else. This pole isn't going anywhere, and neither am I. While the rest of the world rushes this way and that, every day they move faster but get no closer to anything worth having on motor cars and trains, on ships and buses, and even your Mr. Wright's airplanes now. Fancy that. Every day it's all a little faster, moving in all directions at once. I can see them when I look out from here, scurrying, hurrying, tipping hats and gathering skirts, hither and yon, to and fro, everybody in a tizzy to go other than where they already are. And so, the man staying still becomes the oddity to gawk at. Well, here's my ride. Thank you for your time, Mr. Kelly. Uh, shipwreck. Best of luck with the uh, flagpole sitting and everything. Fare thee well, good Dante. Do not expect another word or sign from me. Your will is free, direct, and whole, and it would be wrong not to do as it demands. And so I departed Alvin Shipwreck Kelly, descending earthward again as he quoted from the Purgatorio, Virgil's last words to Dante. This, of course, really only makes sense within context of a conversation of questionable rationality itself. And so if you, the reader, cannot be sure what exactly to make of the story of Shipwreck Kelly, pole sitter extraordinaire, Rest assured that you are not alone. This reporter remains in a baffled state, a condition caused only in part by the great heights at which this meeting took place. Finding meaning in most of what Shipwreck expounded upon, this reporter suspects, would be futile. Maybe these meanderings are what happens to the mind after sitting for prolonged periods at great heights. A question which remains unanswered. Is flagpole sitting a sport? While the activity unquestionably involves extremes in physical stamina, in Shipwreck's version of pole sitting, the amazement comes in observing how the pole sitter handles immobility and inactivity in full view of rushing passers-by. Further, despite the growing craze for pole sitting, no competitions have been organized as yet. One can hardly imagine what such a contest might look like, and the record of 37 years set by St. Simeon, the original pole sitter, is certainly a record never to be broken anyway. Maybe pole sitting might be better reported on the faith pages of the newspaper. The Guardian doesn't have such a section, but at least in Shipwreck Kelly's view, pole-sitting is well more of a spiritual nature than a sporting one. Or maybe he's just as mad as a hatter. As this reporter blessedly neared ground level again, a pang struck me with the biting realization that I'd forgotten the key question. How does he get up there, anyhow? Orva Mulligan, sports writer. End. This has been Orville Mulligan Sports Writer, an audio drama podcast from Number 80 Productions and the Sports History Network. Episode script and story by Chris Kentz and Oz Davis. Orville Mulligan Sports Writer stars Doug Fye, Ilana Fye, and Eric Bodwell. The theme song of Orville Mulligan Sportswriter is the Dayton Triangles Rag and was arranged and performed by Bruce Smith. Additional original music provided by Silverman Sound Studios and David Lizzo of Dynamo Stairs. Please see this episode's liner notes for the full soundtrack listing. Orville Mulligan Sportswriter is produced by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. Series concept by Darren Hayes. Keep your dial locked to this podcast station for the next exciting episode of Orville Mulligan Sports Writer coming soon.
Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.